Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. As we journey through this book, Exodus, I I just want to say a few things by intro. And and, uh, this morning's message really is kind of big picture. We're going to get into chapter one, but uh, we're going to take it from a very um, distant view initially. But we're going to be learning a lot about God, obviously, and then we're going to be learning a lot about Old Testament history, in particular two nations, the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel. And obviously Moses, if you have spent any time in and around of church life, Moses is both our main character and our author of the book of Exodus, which actually forms part of his four other books. In other words, he wrote five books, which is known as the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five tooth books, all right? So the Pentateuch meaning five books, the five books of the law or the law of Moses, which are Genesis through to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. But before we talk too much about Moses and before we talk too much about Egypt and Israel, I want to just remind us of the true hero of the book of Exodus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, we read the following. These are my words. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me, Jesus says. In the law of Moses. And so when we study this book, and we're just going to be focusing mostly on Exodus. We will talk about Genesis. We will talk about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But essentially, Jesus says all of those books and the prophets and the Psalms are about me. And they are foreshadowing them because he then uses the word that they must be fulfilled. Everything about me written by Moses must be fulfilled, which is what his life was. It was a fulfillment of all of those pictures, of all of those events, of all of those foreshadowing moments in the history of Israel. One more verse in John 5 verse 46, we read this. It says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Wow. So, so you, are you saying, Jesus, that Old Testament saints knew about you? Yes. Yes, in the shadows, in the pictures, in the types, Jesus was portrayed. He was the Lamb. He was the temple. He was the Passover. We're going to be learning about all of these wonderful events in the history of of the Exodus, which point us ultimately to Jesus himself. This is 
profound. These verses are profound because Jesus is not only endorsing the Old Testament. So, I mean, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey, but maybe you, maybe you think Jesus is quite an authoritative figure. And if you think he's an authoritative figure, then he's a, he, here, right here, he's an authority on the Old Testament. And he's endorsing the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, Moses, firstly, he recognizes Moses as, his, as a historical figure, but more than that, also as the author of those Old Testament scriptures. And then further, he roots all of Moses' writing in centering on himself. And so our theme, our mega theme for the book of Exodus is our catchphrase, drawn out and drawn in. The name Moses, his name literally means one who is drawn out. The word Moses means drawn out. And obviously this is indicative of what happens to him as a young baby. As we know, the narrative of the story, and we'll get to it in chapters 2 and 3, is that Moses is released under threat for his life, and his mom puts him in a basket and sends him into the Nile. And miraculously, under the providence of God, one of Pharaoh's servants comes along and she draws him out. And obviously that's a picture. Moses is a type of Jesus who rescues us. Who being rescued and drawn out, not just rescues us from things, but rescues us into things. And so the Exodus story is not only a drawing out, but also a drawing in. You see, God not only saves the people from Egypt, but he saves them into his promised land, into his promised rest, into his promised presence. And that's, that's what salvation is. Salvation is us not just being saved from sin. We, yes, that's powerful and that's important. We are saved from our sins, but we are saved to God, to fellowship, saved from and saved to something. And so as we study the book, we're going to be looking at under three main subsections. The book divides this way naturally. And I want to just give you kind of a map for where we're going as we journey together through this book. The six main sections are as follows. From chapters 1 through 4 under the heading Remember. And we're going to be reading all about how God remembered his people. God was faithful. Secondly, we're going to read lots about the rescue plan, how God came to rescue his people from chapters 5 through 18. And then as they come out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, we have this wonderful moment where God descends on Mount Sinai and he meets with Moses and he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments. Under God's rule, God delivers them, God rescues them, and then God wants them to live under his rule. And we're going to be taking each one of those commandments. We'll take one Sunday per commandment to talk through what is God saying in those commandments. Then we move on into God's rest and how the people journeyed with the promise of rest but never really entered. What was that all about? There's a lot of talk about the Sabbath and about reaching the promised land. And yet they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And then the tragedy of all tragedies. The people grumble and they groan. Typical human beings. And while Moses is up on Mount Sinai for the second time, what do the people do? 
They so badly want to go back to Egypt that they take matters into their own hands and they build for themselves an idol, a golden calf. And it's all about how God shows great kindness when they were undeserving and the people repent. And then the final section is a lengthy section, chapters 34 through 40, where we hear about how God comes to renew and refresh his people who have been wandering. So that's the framework, and that's where we're going to be going for the next year as a church together. So let's read chapter 1, and we're going to be covering the whole chapter, but I'm going to first read verses 1 through 7. The book begins like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Remember Jacob? Jacob and his 12 sons, each with his household. So there's more now. They've multiplied a bit. So you've got Reuben and his household, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So there were 70 of them in this tribe. Joseph, remember, was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, the beginning of Exodus actually is a continuation of the Genesis story. That's exactly what Moses wants us to be thinking. He immediately brings us back into the Genesis narrative by reminding us of Jacob and his sons. We are reminded at the end of Genesis in chapter 50 of the death of Joseph, and Exodus 1 begins also with the death and dying of Joseph. Moses is being very intentional. We also see that in these opening verses, we are immediately thrust into the predicament of Israel. The predicament of Israel is they're not in Israel. They are now in Egypt. And that requires the exodus. The fact that they are now in Egypt, in a foreign land, and the name of the book being Exodus, means they need to come out. Now that begs the question, how did they get in? If you have an exodus, there must have been an isodus. Ex meaning come out and iso meaning come in. It's, it's, it's the same as exegesis. When we study the Bible, we do exegesis. We want to take the text and we want to draw out the meaning of the text. We don't want to do isogesis. We don't want to read the text and then read into it our thoughts. We don't want to do that. We, don't want to do, we want to do exegesis. And so the exodus begs the question, how on earth did they get in there in the first place? If they've got to come out, how did they get in? And that's what Moses brings to our attention right in the beginning. He, he opens it with how they got there. Remember, he's kind of forcing that upon us. And immediately we're drawn back into the Genesis story. And we remember that after God called Abraham, eventually Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. And then Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And Joseph, being the youngest, was his favorite. 
which really got under the, the other brother's skin. And, and they despised young Joseph to the point where they tried to kill him, eventually selling him off into slavery and reporting back to their dad that Joseph is dead. And many years pass, but as the, as the Lord would be faithful to his promise, Joseph is now in Egypt as a slave, and he finds favor. He finds favor with the Pharaoh of Egypt. We know the story well. And Joseph rises to power, and he becomes a prince in Egypt. And he has great favor with the Pharaoh in Egypt. And then the story takes a radical turn as a, a massive nationwide famine breaks out. And as the famine ravages across the land of Canaan, Jacob and his sons come knocking on the door of the Egyptians for help. Seeking food and seeking provisions, there they encounter Joseph, who graciously forgives them. And it's from then on, that they stay in Egypt. That's how they got in. Let's read on. Verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Very key phrase. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Notice his fear. Escaping from the land. Therefore, they set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, not just a storehouse, but store cities, Pithom being one and Ramses the other. But the more they were oppressed and the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field. Slave labor. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. One of whom was named Shipra. And the other Hua. When you serve as midwife, just pause there. Notice that the Pharaoh is an unnamed Pharaoh. But the midwives get named. Verse 16. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What's interesting, as we come to the end of this first chapter, is there is this mingling of good and evil. There's hope, and then there's despair. The words bitterness, the words slave, the word multiplied and grew and spread. There is this sharp distinction between what we could call light and dark, between joy and sorrow, between good and serious evil. I mean, commanding the murder of male children at birth. But what's fascinating is that this is what we've seen as Moses connects us to Genesis. In, early on in Genesis, we are presented with this image of a tree in a garden, aren't we? There is the tree of life and there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they disobeyed God. And taking matters into their own hands, we know how the story goes, sin enters and so too evil. And so into what was good, into what was perfect, we are introduced to radical evil. And as the story of Genesis develops, we see this interplay between good and evil all the way through as Cain then kills his brother, Abel. And the story moves and Noah's generation was wicked and God was so even upset about this generation because he has God's good and great creation and yet there's evil and debauchery as the people just take matters into their own hands. And then God wants to start over, and he rescues Noah. And then even after that, even after the flood, and after the renewal, and after God makes all things new, once again we are plunged, even after this merciful God has been so good again, we see the people come together. And they begin to build a tower up to heaven. And they begin to reject the authority of God. And so we go from good to evil to good to evil to good to evil. All the way through. And even in the story of Jacob and his sons. And we get to Joseph. And we've got this beautiful family. And God is being faithful to his promise to bring forth sons and seed. And the brothers turn. And the brothers turn. Just like Cain against Abel. The brothers turn against Joseph. And they take what is good. And they Pursue evil. I think what we soon realize is that this is human nature. Human nature left to itself. Human nature when we take things into our own hands. And all the way through we see this ebb and flow of good and evil. God is good. And man left to himself outside of the authority of God descends to evil. Just to say... 
that the cultural narrative of our day is that if you give man ultimate freedom, the, the progressive mindset of our world today is that if we give man absolute freedom, things will get better. Wrong. Wrong. I mean, we don't even need to root this in Scripture, and, and Scripture is very clear. But if we look at this world, which we are saying, give people ultimate freedom, what does it actually lead to? It leads to evil. It leads to wickedness. And then the book of Genesis, which began with this picture of a tree, of knowledge of good and evil, the book of Genesis chapter 50 ends like this, with this remarkable statement in Genesis 50 verse 20, where Joseph says this to his brothers. He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the book of Exodus begins with the same theme that continues. Because here we see a people flourishing, but at the same time a people persecuted under radical evil. Pharaoh is an evil king. And he's threatened. This people who are growing and are multiplying are threatening his kingdom. They are threatening his status. They are threatening his pride. So, the first thing we see in Exodus 1 is good. God's faithfulness. The story begins. The story begins with one family who came looking for help to Egypt. And they were welcomed. They were immigrants. They came in and they were welcomed. And Joseph made a way for them. And the story begins that it went from one family to 70. The text tells us in the opening verses, there were 70 of them. Together, all together, in the descendants through the brothers, there were 70. But quickly, by the time we get to verse 7, look at this. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Listen, we've now got to millions. From one family to 70 to millions. And, and, and we also hear in this the words fruitful and multiplied. These are words from Genesis, aren't they? We hear the echo of Genesis 1.27, where God created man in his own image, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's what's happening here. And so as we open the book of Exodus, the first thing we see is God is being good. God is being faithful. God's promise in Genesis 1 is being fulfilled in Exodus 1. They are being fruitful and they are multiplying and they are filling the earth. And what's the point of all of this? Why? Why, why is this so important to God? Because God wants to be known. God wants to be known and He's going to be known through His people. Through His people. This is why his image bearers will never be wiped off the face of the earth. This is why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
God wants to be seen and God wants to be known and he will be known through his people. And under the old covenant, it was the old covenant nation of Israel. And under the new covenant, we are joined together, Jew and Gentile, in one body in Christ. And God wants to be known. Now, in the ancient world, when a king wanted to be known, this is what he would do. He would conquer other lands, didn't he? A king would conquer a colonial mindset. They would seek to conquer another people, another land. And then what the king would do in the ancient world is he would set up a statue. Today we put up flags. And the king would, would set up a statue and the statue would be an image of him. And in that foreign land there would be a statue of the king. And that statue would be, would be saying to the people, this is that king's land. This is his rule. And God does something very similar. Because God, what God is saying here is that these people are my image bearers. These people are my called out ones. And I want them to make me known. And so they don't set up wooden stone images because they themselves are the image of the eternal God. And so they need to multiply. They need to grow. They need to fill the earth. God's glory will be seen in the earth as his people make him known. But this threatens the Pharaoh. So God wants to be known in all the earth. But so too does Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants his glory to be known in all the earth. And so as we see the goodness of God... And his faithfulness to multiplying this people, to fulfilling his promise, hot on the heels we see radical evil. Point number two is man's wickedness. And the rest of the narrative is we are thrown from God's amazing faithfulness. We are plunged into the evil of Pharaoh's rule. Notice, first of all, he doesn't remember Joseph. I mean, come on. This was a big part of Egyptian history. The famine was worldwide. He became a prince in Egypt. And so whether this was an honest or a dishonest decision, what we know is that he's here stroking his chin and saying, Joseph who? As the new Pharaoh begins to sound the alarm that we're about to be overrun by strangers. So let's get rid of these non-Egyptians. Clearly he is threatened. And what is his strategy? His strategy is evil. His strategy is implemented swiftly. Firstly, he gets them to build storehouses. You see, he wants to wear them down. He wants to load them with heavy burdens. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built these store cities for Pharaoh. But that wasn't good enough because he couldn't get them down. So even the hard work couldn't get them down. And so Pharaoh comes up with another nasty plan, and this plan was to seriously reduce their population growth. So not only would he put them to hard labor, 
but he would make them slaves. And in order for them to be slaves in the foreign lands, they would then be separated from their wives. And if they are separated from their wives, then there would be no children coming, right? And so the Pharaoh's comes up with this plan. He says, maybe if we treat them harshly enough, some of them are going to be too exhausted when they get back. They're not going to have kids. They'll be malnourished and overlooked, and they may just die. But that didn't work. And so the evil descends even worse. And Pharaoh then decides, let's find a way just to simply kill their babies. Verse 16 and 17, when you serve, he issues a decree to the midwives. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman, see them on their birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. And if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. As it gets darker and darker and dimmer and sadder and sadder, We see the people survive. We see God's faithfulness. You see, not only do we have a contrast here of good and evil, but what we see emerge is that God is good over evil. And this is the point. This is the grand narrative of all of Scripture that God will triumph over evil. In fact, God is able to take evil and turn it for good. Look at what it says in verse 12 and verse 20. Verse 11 was all about them being burdened. Then verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In verse 20, after the decree to kill the children, verse 20 it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people, what? Multiplied and grew very strong. In other words, the Egyptians tried everything, but they keep growing like weeds in your garden. I don't know if you do any gardening, but that's one of my pet hates because that's why I don't garden. So, because the weeds just don't stop. You pull them out and then they're there again. They just don't stop. And, and, and some, there's something about this people. That gets under the skin of the Pharaoh and everything he tries, he cannot put them down. Why? Because God is good and he will triumph over evil. He will triumph over evil. So here's my final thought for us. As we've considered this contrast between good and evil and the final wonderful conclusion that even in the face of evil, even in the midst of the darkness that we see in the story, there is light. I want to say to us as a people, as a church, trust God and be faithful with what you have. Because that's all they had. These were an oppressed people. Yes, they were privileged and they were highly favored, but they were persecuted. They were in a foreign land. They had an oppressive government. They had a corrupt government. They were oppressed at every side, and yet they were faithful with what they had. And what did they have? They had family. And so they had babies. And they had homes. And so I want to say to us as a church, let's not back off. Let's not run and hide. Let's build houses. Let's 
plant gardens. Let's marry. If you can marry, marry. And if, if you can have children, have children. Let's multiply. Let's be God's people. Let's, let's be what God has called us to be. And let's use our gifts and let's change society. Let's be the church and let's make God known. God wants to be known through you and I, church. God wants to use us. He doesn't want us to be hidden. We're never going to be crushed completely. God, we see how God cares for his oppressed people. And God's word to us is multiply where you are. Multiply. Even in the midst of evil. Don't sit back. What do the midwives do? Man, the midwives are, the, are incredible heroes here, aren't they? They even come up with a classic excuse. The Hebrew women are superwomen. Russell Laurie's not here, hey? I mean, Russell Laurie, she's, she's just turned 40, eh? And she just had a big baby. Ryan, Ryan Laurie's baby. It was a big baby. Who else recently had a big baby? Like four point something kilograms. That was long ago. But these Hebrew women, I tell you, they're strong. But they don't just sit back. Under the decree from the king, they do what they can do. They do what they can do. They were trusting God. They were faithful with what they had. Well, let's do the same. Let's do the same. I know it's difficult. In our context here in South Africa, we've got a corrupt government. We've got an oppressive culture. We've got a pharaoh. Pharaohs. We've got a history. We've got challenges. But let's build houses. Let's plant gardens. Let's multiply. Let's trust God. Let's do what we can with what we have. God, God will never let us go. As we sung earlier, He will never let us go. We are His people. God cares for us. He will be faithful. Yes, there is evil, but God is good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And wherever we go, everywhere in this world, we will see good and evil. It's been that way since the fall. But we thank you that with you, God, we have hope. We have hope because you are bigger than the evil. And you have a plan to overcome evil. Even as Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And so we thank you this morning that we, your people, we've been rescued. And as we're going to study in this book, this people get rescued. They get delivered. And we were rescued. We were delivered by the mighty hand of Jesus. And so we thank you, Father, for your plan. Your plan will not fail. Yes, darks will, days will get dark. Times will get tough. We will be persecuted. But you will never forget us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. 
And so may we be faithful with what we have. Strengthen us even now, I pray. In Jesus' name.